0: Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Today we're bringing you an update on long COVID, with Harsha Master, GP and COVID rehabilitation expert, and Trish Greenhouse, Professor of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP and clinical editor for the BMJ. And joining me as usual are my fellow GPs, uh, Navjoy and Jenny. Hi, Jenny.
1: Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ.
0: And Navjoy, hi.
1: Hi, I'm Navjoy
2: Lada. I'm a GP in London and a clinical editor at the BMJ.
0: Hi. Right. Well, before we say hello to our guests, I thought we should kind of have a think about, you know, we've got two world leading experts on long covid here. What, what do you want to extract from them or ask them about?
2: Oh gosh, that's a big. That's a big question because I'm tempted to just say everything. <laughs> Please just impart <laughs> all your knowledge hour, to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I think long COVID is, um, you know, my experience from practice is it's it's still around, but I don't feel like I'm seeing it as much as maybe like two years ago. And I don't know. I, I don't know a lot about the rates and that kind of thing, but um, you know, maybe that's just an example of the subset of patients I see as a locum, you know, maybe I'm not not seeing the the case mix that I'm seeing, but the kinds of questions that have come up more recently for me are things like people who have had long COVID earlier in the pandemic, saying 2020, 2021, have got better um, and had some degree of recovery from their long COVID, but then had been reinfected with COVID-19 and sort of had a bit of a setback and those questions. I mean, it's always been challenging to answer questions about, you know, the sort of uh, prognostic, partly, you know, questions about how long will this last for? And I find that's even more difficult with, you know, the, the second go around. Um, so that that's come up. um, Yeah. And, and then I think just more generally, I think there is still that issue about management, you know, where management is best take, to take place and, and how to su- how to really support people. Um, through through their kind of quite difficult journeys navigating the health system and trying to get answers. that's That yeah. remains an issue, I think.
0: Yeah, Jenny. I,
1: those questions really resonate with me as well. And I think um, most of the kind of queries that I have or curiosity around long COVID relates to, um, you know, kind of in general, how people are doing, um, given some data that we've seen that a lot of people do have symptomatic resolution after, you know, around a year, or maybe longer. Is that kind of true and based in research? And are we seeing in general people getting better? And then I think another thing that's come up for me is, you know, if even if you um, had COVID and maybe didn't have long COVID immediately, you know, is your risk? increasing or is it increasingly likely you will get long COVID if you continue to get reinfected or does natural immunity kind of protect us a little bit from going on to develop long COVID? Um, so I think those are really the, some of the questions that I have. And, and then again is, um, you know, what are the kind of symptoms that you see kind of rising to the top in terms of the most prevalent, the most common things that maybe we weren't aware of initially, but which now really do seem to be predominant features of long COVID?
0: Well, I will only add POTS to that equation, because I think it's really interesting that we knew about POTS before COVID, but, um, but it's maybe it's taken COVID for people to take POTS seriously. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm going to ask them about that. So, I think that's plenty to talk about. I'm sure we'll cover more than that as well. Um, so, let's meet uh, Harsha and Trish. Uh, let's start with Harsha. Hi, can you uh, just yeah introduce yourself?
3: Uh, hi, Tom. It's really lovely to be here. So, um, my name's uh, Harsha, and I'm a GP by background, um, and was asked uh, very early on in the pandemic whether I'd be interested in running a sort of COVID rehab pathway. Um, and at that time, nobody knew what that was or what it would be. Um, but I have been working in COVID rehab since August 2020.
0: Wow. So lots of experience. Yeah. Huge amount of experience. I'm, <laughs> I'm interested to hear how you went about that, just creating a pathway. Easy. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't. Um, and Trish, hi.
4: Hi. Yeah, I'm Trish Greenhouse. I trained as a general practitioner, but haven't practiced clinically. Uh, for a few years. I'm a full-time researcher. I work at the University of Oxford, and we've got a number of studies going on long COVID. Um, The biggest one we've got at the moment is something called LOCOMOTION, and that's an acronym. I can't remember what it stands for, but what we're doing is we're working with long COVID clinics across the country, most of which are based in secondary care, but one or two, like Harsha's, are based in primary care and The more I do research in this area, the more I think long COVID is a condition that is best managed in primary care. And I think we'll probably discuss that more uh, as this podcast goes on.
0: Thank you. Well, um, I just wanted to to set the scene a bit more, Trish, by looking back to August 2020, when you you co-authored an article for BMJ on describing long COVID, and we had a chat about it on the BMJ podcast. Um, What do you think... Has much changed since then, either in our understanding, you know, of, of COVID, how to treat it, what to do.
4: Well, one of the really interesting things about COVID and particularly long COVID is that the more research appears, uh, the less certain I seem to be uh, about where the truth lies, and you know the things that back in august 2020 what i really wanted to know is come on what is the molecular basis of this condition what exactly goes on in the immune system um is it an immune thing this long covid or should we just forget about all that immunology and 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 think of this as as a a, a standard but but you know obviously rather severe post viral syndrome and you you know do the things we did for any other person with a post viral fatigue or cough or whatever and, and 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 you know with those patients as we all know you don't send them for lots and lots of tests but you make sure that they've got uh, what we used to call convalescence so having done research on this for two two more years and and worked a little bit with some of the immunologists and and uh, also worked with patient groups who are very keen on things like microclots i still don't know the answer there are still some people who say look this is all over medicalizing people we do not need to do these fancy tests we do not need to go down that route we can just uh, take a standard approach to rehab um but Actually, there are some very interesting papers, but then there's other papers that say, look, this isn't going to help you in clinical practice. So where does that leave us? You know, why are we now trying to produce a a series of articles around long COVID? It's not because we've wrapped everything up. It's not because we now know every single answer to every single molecular and pharmacological question. It's because... Actually, there's an awful lot of people with long COVID and there are are many, many things we can do to help them. That's one of the things I've learned from sitting in on on long COVID clinics is even the most intractable patients can be helped. There are things that we can do. We may not be able to cure them. And I
2: suppose that's a a bit what we're going to talk about uh, with Harsha today. I mean, that's that's really interesting, that kind of evolution. Um, And in terms of the kind of rates that we're seeing, has that Is that static? Is that going up, going down? Do you have a sense of that at all? Well, I think one of the things to note is that this was always a bit of a contested
4: condition because right at the beginning, people were not being tested for COVID. And so when they came in with cough and fatigue after whatever disease it was, uh, we didn't know whether that was a COVID condition or whether it was something else. Uh, and, And actually, officially, I'm sure people know that you do not have to have had a swab positive uh, episode of COVID for you to be diagnosed with long COVID. But what that means is that it was always a bit difficult knowing what the denominator was. Uh, the other thing is there were problems with getting appointments to see some GPs and so and people kind of joined online support groups and, and kind of did their own rehab rather than going to GPs. And then there was the problem, or not problem, but but the fact that Many, much long COVID research was happening in secondary care. And so the denominator populations were people who had been referred to long COVID clinics. And any GP will tell you, in relation to any disease, that actually, the people you refer to the specialist do not constitute the totality of patients with the condition. Now, all that has gone along on a moving baseline. Uh, so we still don't know what the rate of long COVID is simply because we're not seeing all the patients uh, and because. Even now, when we diagnose someone with long COVID, we're still not 100% sure that it's COVID that caused it. And we are going to have to cope with that uncertainty. But there is one thing that has come out of the research over the last few months. And I think this is now pretty solid evidence, which is that Getting vaccinated and staying up to date with your vaccinations will, first of all, make it much less likely that you develop long COVID. And also, if you do develop long COVID, it will make that long COVID less severe uh, and less protracted. So there is a really big message here. If you want to prevent long COVID, make sure everybody, particularly high risk people, have been fully vaccinated.
0: One, one thing I noted, well, I don't know if this is pure anecdotes, but you might be able to tell me. I've reviewed Harsha and Trish whether there's any basis for this. But in those early days, like the people I was seeing with long COVID, the level of distress, at, and I guess the fear with uncertainty of all that was going on, seemed so much, seemed to be a greater sort of contributing factor to their presentation than, than what I've seen more recently, um, where I suppose we we know more about what this beast long COVID is and people people's reactions to to that label seem very seem to be a bit different and more maybe more um or less less distressing. But is, is is that is there any basis to that?
3: Just from a clinical point of view, that's a really interesting question. And when I first started, we went live in sort of July, August 2020. So we obviously started seeing those patients from that first wave. And I can tell you with, uh, you know, they were so ill. I've, I've never seen anything like it. I had patients that I sent straight to A&E, even when I was on the phone with them. There were patients who'd had like months and months breathlessness, who couldn't get upstairs, who had chest pain, who were just so poorly, who'd gone to their GP and were told, it's just post-viral, it's long COVID, you'll get better, and had had nothing. It was really interesting. Um, and at that time, we were getting about, you know, 40 to 50 referrals, I would say, a month. Then we had the second strain. That was that second strain that hit in December 2020. And that was also really bad. They were really, really poorly. Uh, We had a huge spike in our referrals. They went up to about 120 a month. So that was like three times the amount of referrals that we were getting before. Um, And then, interestingly, you know, post-vaccination, we were kind of expecting a drop in those referrals. And, And it has dropped a bit, but it's gone back to what it was before. So we're still now getting about 40 to 50 a month which so it's it's staying consistent um and in general i think on you know on on the statistics website it's still over two million people are are self-reporting long covid symptoms so it's still a huge problem but are they I, i do still see the symptoms is it as severe as in that first wave no i mean that first wave was really really bad from my perspective of what i was seeing
1: can I also ask whether there is any more clarity on the kind of diagnostic criteria or definition of long COVID? Um, I was reading recently that different organizations have different definitions for this. And, you know, to your point, Trish, that, um, you know, the the underlying rate is still so different. I wonder about the extent to which kind of that diagnostic uh, criteria plays into that uncertainty? And, and Harsha, maybe you can say kind of how you address that in clinic.
3: So I think that, you know, obviously, um, we we were sort of waiting for a definition when we first started, because there was no definition from the NICE guidance. And actually, just Trish, I just want to say your paper that you wrote was so amazing and so helpful for clinics like us, because it gave us a sort of starting point. So for us, you know, it was very much like, Uh, So we basically go on the NICE guidance that, you know, that acute COVID is in those first four weeks. That ongoing symptomatic is between those four and 12 weeks. And anything past that, you know, over 12 weeks, we define now as sort of post-COVID syndrome or long COVID. So that's the kind of definition. Very early on, actually, I was asked, are we going to take patients that haven't had a test? that you know didn't test positive um and I remember there was no guidance on this at all and I was very much like no we have to accept that that those patients so many of them were healthcare workers like us you know who didn't get tested we were frontline there were no tests available we knew that the False negative rate was high. I think it was about thirty percent at that time. So we had to be a bit flexible with what we are t- what we, what we were taking. I think now there are better tests available. We can get a better idea, but I think at that time, um, so that's kind of where we based that diagnostic criteria. And for us, it was you know adults. We didn't really deal with children because that's a whole separate area. You know, over the age of eighteen. And that was it really and as long as they had symptoms that were highly suggestive of Covid we were happy to accept those patients. Um, originally our clinic was designed for post-ITU patients, that's how it got set up, it was a rehab pathway um, and then we you know again like you know from Trish you know from social media we started to see this huge influx of patients that you know in the community that had had a milder illness but just weren't recovering So then we just expanded it and we were like, right, we'll see anyone, anyone who's had COVID, who's not recovering, we will see. And that's kind of how our clinic evolved.
0: Harsha, I'd love to know a bit bit more about that, actually, because I think a lot of GPs these days do... Thing. oh i'd like to set up a clinic i think i once wanted to do a teledermatology clinic and that fell by the wayside and also how, how do you actually set something like this up
3: <laughs> that's a, a, a difficult question so it, i can't take all the credit um <laughs> as i said it was it, as the i think as sometimes the best ideas do it came from a group of professionals that have like allied health professionals that were sitting in a room working you know after a particularly gruesome uh, covid shift that they'd done you know, who were looking at all these patients in ITU going, oh, my God, what are we going to do with this patient cohort? They're just so ill. So they came together and thought, maybe we need to design a pathway. So initially, our pathway was very much allied health professional, community based, you know, as a re- post-ITU rehab pathway. And as I said, then we started to see all these cases in the community. And um, my, I work at Hertfordshire Community Trust, which is essentially in the community, but we have GPs, we're a big team. Um, and so they ha- So this idea came out, why don't we set up, um, you know, a joint pathway to kind of see these patients. But at that time, we had no idea what we were going to see. We didn't know what was out there. We didn't know how ill they were. We didn't know what symptoms they were going to come in with. So essentially what happened, there was a group of people, including occupational therapists, pulmonary rehab, because we knew obviously the breathlessness was an ongoing issue. Uh, Myself, I was asked to provide the medical input psychology we knew some of these patients were going to get ptsd or have you know uh, emotional needs um, and fatigue was going to be a big big one and we're quite lucky to have a fatigue service so we all came together Mm -hmm. and started to have a discussion and that's literally how it started we had a weekly meet what are we going to do what's out there is there any evidence you know what kind of things are they seeing in hospitals how can we adapt that and that's generally how it started and it was like well how are we going to how are we going to What's our criteria going to be? You know, what sorts of things do we need on our referrals? Like what kind of tests do we want primary care to do first before they come into us? Um, And I think right from the beginning, we had to have that mindset of we don't know what we're going to see. So we have to be flexible. We have to be adaptive. You know, we we have to be able to adapt and we have to have that ability to change as we go along. And, you know, as I said, adapt it to need. And I think that's where our strengths have really
0: been in that flexibility and adaptability. What about um, <clears throat> tracking whether it whether it's working? The outcomes and I suppose, Trish, with your lo- locomotion work, this is what that's all about, I suppose. But that that seems to be something that's sometimes missing when it comes to GP, not just GP-led, but some of these community-led. So new services, I often wonder if if we're really tracking that whether they're working well enough.
4: Well, one of the things we've got in the locomotion study is a patient reported outcome measure, um, which is, uh, let me see if I can get the acronym, the COVID-19 Yorkshire Rehabilitation Scale, because it was developed in Yorkshire, the C19YRS. Um, But one of the things we're seeing in the clinics is that it's being used inconsistently. And a lot of the frontline clinicians think of this as a research tool. And that raises a more general issue, of course. You know, when you're a GP, and I was a GP for, you know, 30 years, um, mostly when I manage a patient who's coming back because they're not better, even though we thought they should be better, It's very rare to monitor their progress using one of these fancy scales. What you generally do is take a history and get the narrative and they come along and they say, oh, yes, you know, I've got back to work or I'm, you know, I can do the hoovering now without any trouble, doctor, you know, those kind of things. And I think we GPs kind of struggle a little bit with, with some of these let's tick all the boxes and add the score up. I don't know, Harsha, you might have a view on this. What do you do? You take histories or do you give surveys?
3: Yeah, so I think it's been really hard. I mean, and I think that's been one of the biggest problems, isn't it, the outcome measure? How do you track this? Um, and essentially what we found in, in long COVID particularly is a remitting, relapsing illness. So symptoms come mm. and go. And, you know, when you do that outcome measure is very dependent on how they are at that time. So they can be having a good day or they could be having a really bad day and they can be a few days apart and you'll get very different results. Mm -hmm. So how do you track that? And if they've just had COVID again or if they've had another infection, all of their symptoms will be worse. And it's really difficult. I mean, we used, I, we helped sort of with that, uh, the Yorkshire screening tool. We used that quite early on that had come out from Leeds and we sort of adapted it within our own pathway to add symptoms or change it. And then obviously now it's, it's a more sort of uh, official document. We use it almost as a screening tool at the beginning. So, you know, it, it really helps us because people have so many symptoms. How do you remember to ask about every single symptom? So we use that. It's really good as part of our criteria coming in. Patients have to have filled in that questionnaire. And it gives us a really good baseline of what their symptoms are uh, when they come in. And we can then, when we see them, we can then we do that initial triage and we use that to, you know, basically list and document all of their symptoms, go into detail about each symptom. And then at each review, what I will really do is go back to those symptoms and say, Mm. How are you doing? You know, what this is what you had before. This is what, you know, what have you got now? So that way we sort of track it and I will track their employment I will track what they can and can't do and the biggest thing I do is you know what were you like pre-COVID what could Mm -hmm. you do and what is it you cannot do now tell me about your life now and that is hugely important because in different people that's very different and we know that COVID affects Mm -hmm. primarily you know young fit healthy people I was not expecting that I thought it was going to be older people with lots of comorbidities Mm -hmm. that's not Mm -hmm. what I found So, but, you know, different people, some people, you know, a big goal is being able to get out of bed and clean, you know, cook and look after their kids. And for others, it's being able to do a 5K run when they could do a 10K run. So it has to be, it's all relative. Mm -hmm. And and that's what's been quite difficult.
4: Can can I I fully agree with that, Harshan. I'm just remembering I've been sitting in on some long COVID clinics in secondary care, and it's persuaded me that one thing you can't do is use that C19YRS or indeed any other kind of formal checklist of symptoms to diagnose long COVID, Uh, because uh, if you've got someone who's got multimorbidity, and particularly if they're elderly, we had a case the other day of someone in their 80s who had Um, you know the usual stuff that people in their 80s come to the doctor with they had heart failure they had arthritis had a bit of anxiety um blah blah and of course one of the things that that uh, they said was there's no point in giving this patient this c19 yrs because they're going to score positive on on a lot of Mm. dimensions of it but that's not because they've got long covid it's because they need a comprehensive geriatric assessment and they need to go down that route so so in a way the symptoms, as we all know of long COVID are fairly nonspecific i mean they they fit a particular pattern and we might talk about that. but in the end, being tired it's not diagnostic of anything it's 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 a, a nonspecific symptom, as is you know being in pain, all that kind of thing,
3: and also, just to say, like um, I think that it, what we know about covid is what I found you know, just from my experience it it can make existing conditions worse. So I've got a lot of patients who had mild asthma and then COVID really makes it significantly worse. So again, what it does is blur the lines. Like, how do you know what's COVID or what is their existing condition that's just got a bit worse? So it's very, very complicated to try and manage this, particularly when you've got so many symptoms as well to try and get through. And I think that's the biggest challenge that I have found with long That
1: is super interesting. Can I... Can I ask you, Harsha, though, kind of yeah. what symptoms are you really predominantly seeing? What's what's kind of most common in which you've kind of continued to see in terms of presentations? Or is it just too variable to, to say?
3: No, there's, there's quite a few. And I would say that, you know, the most common I would say is breathlessness, um, uh, fatigue. And again, it's not like I, I've now learned, you know, it's not just I'm tired. It is a... i uh, i I cannot get out of bed my limbs feel really heavy doing any activity sends me to bed so it's like a severe fatigue um the brain fog um in the first wave i got a lot of hoarse voice like a dysphonia which again Mm. i wasn't really expecting so people could complain of a hoarse voice and a very tight Mm. throat they felt like they were Strangled. Mm. Um, and one of the biggest symptoms that I wasn't really expecting, and actually at the time, and we can come on to that because that's now related to POTS, but you know, was chest pain and chest mm. tightness. So we did an audit actually of all our, the symptoms that we got after the first wave. So patients coming in between August 2020 and December 2020. And the three biggest symptoms were fatigue, breathlessness, and chest pain. And that was really interesting for me because I knew I was seeing it. Um, but actually, to be able to you know see it in a in a chart was really interesting for me um but yes you know brain fog the sleep disruption that's another one really big one um I think I've talked about brain fog and then that kind of you know anxiety they always feel like they're a bit on edge but it's not really anxiety and I think a lot of a lot of patients coming were coming to me saying I've been to my GP and they're just saying it's anxiousness and you know my heart's pounding and it's all anxiety, but it really wasn't that at all. And I think that if you've got a population that, you know, these are people who were previously really fit and well, who worked full time, who ran their house, who some of them did marathons and triathlons, who suddenly couldn't do any of this, you are going to have that level of anxiety if you don't know what it is. And people are, trying, you know, so I, I think, yeah, it's really difficult. But those definitely, I would say, the, mo- the more common symptoms that I was seeing, again, with that, the palpitations and the tachycardia.
4: Can I just come in there, Hasha, because I think it's always alarming when someone walks in or, or hobbles in and says, I've got chest pain. And of course, we have to exclude the red flag symptoms. But this is about taking a history because the chest pain of long COVID is not the same as the chest pain of something like angina. But patients have these phrases that they use. One of them is, it was like an elephant sitting on my chest. It's usually quite Easily distinguishable from classic cardiac chest pain. Am I right?
0: Is is that the so the elephant on chest, is that for long COVID or, or, or cardiac?
4: No, the elephant on chest. Well, you're right, you know, I suppose if you're having a heart attack, you might have that <laughs> as well. Um but the elephant on chest is, I don't know whether it's circulating in the long COVID online groups, but I've had a lot of long COVID patients use that particular metaphor um and i think the other thing that is they talk about the elephant and see whether it's there today i had an elephant on my chest yesterday but today the elephant's not there um but if i overdo it it might be there tomorrow type thing and that's not the kind of story you get if someone's having a myocardial infarction which also might give them a crushing chest pain
3: but i think it's difficult isn't it i think that when when i first started this clinic i was you know as a gp we spent half our time going. You can only come in with one problem, two at the most. You know, we just can't do it in those 10 minutes. You know, when I first started seeing patients, they were coming with like 10 different symptoms. And some of the biggest ones were the breathlessness, chest tightness, chest pain. And you have to almost, you know, and I found that really, you know, I, I could be really honest here. And so I found it really overwhelming. Be, I didn't quite know how to navigate this. And what I ended up doing was just making lots of lists. These are your symptoms that you've got. And then let's go into each one in more detail. But what I found was it's really difficult at that point to say, well, what is what? Is that chest tightness respiratory? Because I've got breathlessness as well. Is it cardiac? And actually, Trish, you know, definitely in the beginning, I've got better at it now. It was quite difficult to distinguish. Is this an ischemic type pain? Because some of these people were in their 50s. And at that point, we were hearing things about myocarditis and pericarditis and cardiologists were telling us there's been a big increase in ischemic heart disease post-COVID so actually how do you know and that history is hugely hugely important you know and and patients actually that's really I, I would say this is one of the biggest things that they valued someone taking that long history going into every single symptom you know trying to pull it all together and you know a lot of them particularly in that first wave you know no one had really done that and they felt that no one had listened to them they were being fobbed off um no one really cared and just that first base of like having that full almost holistic assessment which is what we started doing gave them some validation made them and that you know I would say that that, that was one of the biggest factors in the beginning that made them feel a bit better that sort of started their path to recovery uh which I found really interesting
0: I think that's in the infographic the the your updates Trish about bearing witness or just being being there to listen to the, the the story.
4: Well yes but it's beginning to sound a bit mushy and I think it's much more than that because as we all know covid is a multi-system disease you know in initially we thought it was a disease of the chest it's actually a multi-system disease and you get sensory input from Every organ system. I mean, Harsha's talked about voice, you know, things in the chest that you're not sure if they're respiratory or cardiac, but we haven't talked about joints, skin, um, yes. abdominal symptoms, headaches. And it's not just that you're kind of bearing witness to the fact that the person is suffering, there is that, but there is also the important role of the dialogue between the patient and the clinician, which Uh, where you kind of listen to their symptomatology and then you start to offer an explanation as to what might be going on. And it makes those symptoms much less frightening. I mean, I remember the first time my GP said to me, oh, it sounds like you're getting migraine. And you think, oh, right. So I'm not having a stroke. Because then they talked about the blood vessels contracting and this is why you're getting the visual symptom. And it all sounds, you know, very straightforward. But, you know, actually until you have got an explanation that meshes with your symptoms, your migraine actually does feel like a brain tumour. Similarly, with long covid when, when you've got, you know, whatever symptom it is, like the voice stuff, I've, I've talked to people with with problems with their voice and they think they've got throat cancer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the combination of selected investigations, which, you know, often come back negative and saying, you know, there's a lot of it about this is this story is very similar to the stories other people with long covid have got that then helps people interpret their own symptoms uh and yes they feel validated but they also feel oh okay i I can deal with this i can handle it if that's what it is um and that's really important
0: so i think it'd be a great time now to go into some of those common symptoms you're seeing now harsher and and maybe so just some useful tips for us uh, GPs as to what, what do we say for, for some of these these things so um, I really want to know about POTS but maybe first um, even more probably want to know about fatigue what, what what what's a good approach to helping somebody with those often like crippling fatigue symptoms
3: I think the most important thing and I think uh, you know in terms of how our pathway has evolved I think the most important thing to say here is long Covid is almost a diagnosis of exclusion So it's you know when they you know when they come with all these different symptoms they can often overlap with other things and I think at the beginning it was quite easy for people to say well this is just long COVID this is just post COVID there's nothing else and I did have a couple of patients who ended up later being diagnosed with malignancy or having something really simple like a chest infection so I think when you have that patient in front of you I think it's really important to just go back to your normal general practice uh you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for um management and you know going through that history what could this be and common things are common so is it are you anemic you know is it um has anything else happened H- could you potentially have an autoimmune disorder all of those things and i think you know in our criteria all of those bloods that chest rate the chest x rate that ecg all has to be done before they come in so that normal management that you would always do is really really important because what you're essentially doing is excluding all of those things that can be treated and, you know, some of those symptoms can be reversed. But in terms of some of the other symptoms, um what I had to do at the beginning, I, I think the medical symptoms, because they're so vast, and I know you, you've, you've talked about fatigue, but there really were so many. And as I said, it was difficult to decipher what, what what is coming from what. And what I had to do in my pathway was create, I had to create pathways into secondary care, because I'm community-based and I had to to start to have lots of conversations so I worked with respiratory consultants I had to set up conversations with cardiologists to say look this is what and sort of you know I did ENT I'm quite lucky to have a fatigue team and what we started to do was have some conversations together what are these symptoms how can we manage them and what I will say is there is some value in doing some investigations um, because We didn't know what we don't. We still don't know the the pathology of, of COVID. You know, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what we're going to find a couple of years down the line. And I think excluding some of those red flags is really, really important, particularly when patients are really distressed by their symptoms. And we don't know what it is. So what I started to do was I started to do investigations. Let's just rule it out. You know, I'm going to refer you to a cardiologist. You have got chest pain. You have got palpitations. I can't really explain it by COVID. So I'm going to refer you. And I set up all these pathways. I set up pathways into ENT, cardiology, respiratory. um, And we would then have meetings to discuss some of these more complex patients. And as much as some of the, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk now that what's the point of doing them because they're all coming back as normal. But actually, I found huge value in doing them because what it does is it tells that patient, we are taking your symptoms seriously. We don't know what this is, you know. And if they have these tests and they come back and they're normal, I can then say, I'm really pleased. That's really good. That's really reassuring. Let's now move on to the rehabilitation phase. And they are much more amenable to be engaged with that rehabilitation if you have chest pain or you have you know as as Trish was saying hoarseness of voice and you're worried about throat cancer you're never going to be able to move forwards from that until we you know we we know that we're not dealing with anything sinister so i think that's really important but i think going back to fatigue fatigue is always something i deal with right at the end now we tried to sort of manage that at the beginning and we didn't really find it that helpful But again, what I find with fatigue, it's really important to go into that history. And sleep is a big issue. We know that COVID can cause sleep disruption. Some people already were poor sleepers. But if you have someone who is not sleeping at all or they're waking up frequently, they are going to have fatigue. They are going to have brain fog. They are going to wake up and their mood might be lower. And it almost makes all of their symptoms worse. So unless you address that at the beginning, you're not really going to get anywhere else with any of the other symptoms. So when I do that initial ass- assessment, I will go into all of their symptoms and it's very, very, very detailed. Are you sleeping? Could this be sleep apnea? Is that the cause? You know, that is that why you're so fatigued? So it's almost like trying to it's almost like a process of elimination and, and working out that bigger picture.
0: Interesting. Um, Navjoy, Jenny, what what do you want to know about other clinical um, tips?
2: Well, I, I was just wondering, um, Harsha, you mentioned that, um, you know, in the first wave you were seeing more of that chest pain, breathlessness, fatigue kind of cluster. Is that still the predominant sort of symptom, types of symptoms you're seeing now? Has that changed? And, and what, what seems to be kind of is, is there a kind of dominant symptomology or symptom cluster that you're seeing now that is kind of particularly problematic? Um, so it's interesting, actually. So different strains seem to have
3: caused different things. Right. So that first wave, there was a lot of the breathlessness, the chest pain and the hoarseness of voice. I'm not really seeing so much of the voice issues now. Um, in the second wave, quite a lot of GI issues, the diarrhoea, vomiting, nausea. That was quite interesting, which I didn't really see so much in the first wave. But the predominant symptoms, yes, I would say, is the fatigue, the breathlessness, the brain fog. Um, and uh, I do still get the, the, the sort of, you know, that sort of the tachycardia and the, and the chest tightness. That's still very, very common. Um, and so when they first come into our pathway, we have a specialised occupational therapist who does a triage. So she uses that, that COVID-19 screening questionnaire. through all their symptoms and if they've got breathlessness for example we will send them through to pulmonary rehab because what we're seeing with the breathlessness um what covid seems to cause is this sort of disordered breathing pattern this dysfunctional breathing pattern which was really interesting again we didn't know what that was at the beginning we now know what it is so they will see them they do an educational class they will see them face to face look at how they're breathing and do some work um and then if they're not happy, if for example, you know, they're not really progressing, they're not really moving, they'll flag that up to me and they'll say, Oh, you know, we're not really happy, we think there's something else going on. So when I see them, I get then go into that more detailed history. Um, I will then maybe do some more investigations, like I can request a CT, and I've got really good links into respiratory where they can get lung function tests, a CT scan. They have all of that assessment. And then once respiratory have, you know, either found something or not found something, they refer them back to me. And then we can progress with all the other symptoms. Because what we found is at the beginning, um, and this is quite important, I think when you know, because we had all these, you know, we set up our pathway and we had occupational therapy, psychology, mental health, fatigue. And what we ended up doing was referring all of those patients to all of those services at the beginning you know, in the hope that all of them would get better. And what we found is the fatigue, you know, they they have fatigue and brain fog and they just could not process it. They couldn't manage all of those different things. So we had to slow that rehab down. So now they sort of go to pulmonary rehab. If they've got ongoing medical issues, they come to me. I will then decide, you know, do they need psychology? Uh, Do they need occupational therapy who can help with return to work and cognitive assessments? or do they need that sort of more longer fatigue management that help with pain and pacing? So we almost try to do it in order, and we have had to change it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We've changed our pathway around. But definitely doing it in that slow approach helps a bit better.
0: Um, Trish, can I ask you first, uh, is it fair to say that that patient communities have forced pos- POTS onto the agenda for, for clinicians and how, how confident are we in the evidence base for diagnosis?
4: Right. So let's, let's expand the acronym first. What we're talking about is postural yes. orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which means uh, the person gets a fast heart rate when they stand up, which is not associated with a, a drop in blood pressure. Uh, and we've got a... a another practice pointer in the BMJ, which gives all the diagnostic criteria but basically it's somebody who sounds like they might have orthostatic hypotension but then their blood pressure doesn't drop I and mean, who wonders what's going on now it's true that patients are very keen on this the patient online communities talk about it a lot patients come to their gps and say oh i think i might have pots and then people think oh my goodness um Yes, in a sense, they've put it on the agenda. But I would also say, perhaps they, they're they right to put it on the agenda, because it looks like quite a lot of these cases are being missed. That doesn't mean that everybody who comes in and says, I've got this fluttering in my heart, doctor, I've got pots. It doesn't mean they've definitely got it. But it does mean we at least need to take a proper history and do some very simple tests to uh, confirm or exclude the diagnosis. And we need also to bear in mind, something that Harsha said earlier on, is that like many other symptoms of long COVID, this is intermittent. It. it fluctuates we say in the paper it's sometimes a bit like the uh, an arrhythmia where where the patient describes it and then you you don't catch it and so you think oh they're probably imagining it no they're not it's just that you haven't found it and so even when your tests are negative if the patient is giving a really clear history of palpitations and dizziness which seem out of proportion to the level of exercise they're taking um and which have good and bad days, they may well have um, some problem with their autonomic nervous system, and that may be a feature of long COVID. So yes, all right, the patients are talking about it. It doesn't mean they're wrong.
3: (laughs) So I was just going to say just from um, how this has sort of evolved in our pathway, yes, it was, you know, documented in patient forums. But from my point of view, when I was, you know, when I started my clinic, as I said, I started to see a lot of this chest pain, this chest tightness. I would send them to cardiology. They would have investigations like a 24 hour tape, an echo, which would come back as normal. And then they were discharged and sent back to me. And the patient was so, but I still, I still feel like I've got palpitations. You know, it hasn't got better. What do I do? So I started, I, was, I, I didn't really know what to do with this. I was like, what is this that I'm seeing? So I had to do almost, I had to really think outside the box. And, you know, I started listening to some of these patient forums. What were they saying? Where, what do they think it was? And I ended up contacting uh, different people just to get some more knowledge. So one of them was like Nick Gall, who's a pot specialist at King's, you know, and I and again, he was desperately busy. But I was like, look, I'm, I've got all these patients. I don't know what to do with them. Can you give me some advice? Um, and he did. And we sat down and we, you know, he, he went through what he does and what kind of symptoms to look out for. And I think some of that is in our paper. He wrote that paper with us. Um, but it was really interesting for me because. I was in this quandary of like a, that, you know, I couldn't really get any further investigation. So I ended up having to do a lot of it myself. So he gave me a sort of home, which I think is where that other test is based from the home where you can monitor it at home, a blood pressure and a pulse. You do it over 10 minutes. You know, a GP can do it in surgery or a patient can do it at home or you can do it via video. And I started to, you know, get patients um, to start doing this. And I started to have to think about how I was going to explain it. And the way I did explain it to patients was I said that I think COVID is causing some sort of dysfunction of your autonomic nervous system. And I said, you know, I think in the paper it it talks about that it's your autonomic nervous system is responsible for those sort of unconscious actions, things like breathing and heart rate. And um, COVID seems to really upset this. Um, and normally what happens is uh, when you when you are faced with a threat, you know, you go into this fight or flight, your heart rate goes up, your breathing goes right, goes up. And, and normally what happens is when that threat has gone, everything goes back to normal. But post COVID, that doesn't seem to happen. So you almost remain in this feeling of fight or, or fright. And they seem to really understand that. And the management around it, obviously, you know, the diagnosis is quite tricky because um, I think uh, the criteria is that the heart rate has to go up by sort of 30 beats a minute um, and the heart and the blood pressure stays the same. But when I started doing this on patients, they didn't know most of them didn't meet this criteria. They were around about sort of 20 beats a minute that their heart rate would increase. So they were sort of certainly on that spectrum of pots. But what I started to do was then implement the same management strategies of what Nick Gore was telling me. Why don't we just try it anyway and see if it works? So things like the, you know, the fluid repletion, adding salt if it's appropriate. Um, but the biggest thing I think was talking about this remitting, relapsing. That if you get, there are definitely barriers to recovery. So things like stress, overexertion, poor sleep, and what those things seem to do is trigger a relapse of all their symptoms, including their pot symptoms. Um, and if you can find ways to If you can identify the triggers for that and address them and find ways to calm that down, that primarily that seems to really help their symptom.
1: Um, I have a question and I'm trying to think about the best way to articulate this. And I think it's that prior to COVID, there was, and I think Tom, you were alluding to this a little bit, there was a little bit of skepticism around whether POTS was a distinct diagnosis or whether it was perhaps miss or overdiagnosis of something else. And given some of the skepticism, too, about long COVID and its existence, and Trish, you mentioned this, you know, some people still even question whether this exists. I wonder how those two have kind of come together. Like, has the experience of increased incidence of POTS after, or orthostatic tachycardia after COVID kind of given more legitimacy to the diagnosis um, just because more people are experiencing it or are kind of what have you seen in this, in the sense of kind of people believing this is a real thing or, or, or even perhaps the evidence underlying it?
4: Um, uh, that's a really interesting question. I'm really glad you asked it. One of the things that I've learned is sitting in multidisciplinary team meetings hearing people discuss long covid patients and also doing a lot of qualitative research where we interview people with long covid is it's really quite unhelpful to go in down the route where some diseases are quote real and other diseases are quote functional um certainly with uh tachycardia following covid there are documentable changes in the heart rate which are out of proportion to what the patient is doing. Now, people will say, well, that's because they're anxious. But actually, tachycardia, anxiety-induced tachycardia when you stand up is not a thing, whereas actual autonomic dysfunction can lead to that. So we've talked to several people, many people who were diagnosed as anxious and no tests were done. You know, the the lean test wasn't done. The active stand test wasn't done. Nobody actually stood them up and did, you know, waited for the relevant amount of time and took their pulse and their blood pressure and wrote it down in the medical record. So I think the first thing that people need to do when they've got a patient who comes along with this description is not dismiss them as functional right away is to actually you know read the paper we um published in the bmj recently or read something else if you want um but take a history do the measurements take account of the fact that this may be intermittent and even if it's negative you know the patient actually may uh have it on a different day if the patient is is capable of ma- making the readings at home, you may want to give them uh, instructions that, you know, could you document this, capture it like you would capture an arrhythmia uh, and bring it back. Um, and yes, there are patients who are anxious about everything and who are going to pick something out of the Daily Mail and come to you. We know that, but that doesn't mean that POTS doesn't
1: exist. And and just my final question is kind of, um, again, if, if people continue to get COVID, are they at an increased likelihood of getting long COVID? Um, if they were to get long COVID again, is it likely to be more severe or kind of what patterns are you seeing with that? So from
3: my perspective, just based on what I've seen, um, I'm definitely seeing patients who have had, you know, who had COVID in that first way were fine and then got COVID again last year and then now have got long COVID symptoms. The ones that did get long COVID, um, interestingly, what what I have documented is that um, getting COVID again will exacerbate their existing long COVID symptoms and I have started now to tell patients that because what we started to get was patients coming back to our clinic who got COVID again and what I what I now do at discharge is I will tell them that If you get a severe infection, if you get COVID again, you are likely to get an exacerbation of Mm. all of your symptoms again. And that is normal. And you have to Mm. draw on what you've learned already. You know, all of that work around breathing, around pacing, identifying your triggers, resting, you know, maybe having some time off work and going back on on a more extended phase return. And you almost Mm. have to go back to the beginning and then build, build your stamina up slowly. And that really is what seems seems to help. But that's what I'm finding. I'm not finding that they're it, it, they're they're worse or they're more severe than their initial illness. No.
1: Super helpful. Thank you.
0: Well, uh, there's so much more we we could talk about, um, but we, we've run out of time. Thank you trish and harsha it's been brilliant to have you on um i hope to see you again sometime if you'll come back uh, thanks trish
4: thanks uh thanks for having us
0: and uh, yeah nice, lovely to meet you harsha
3: lovely to meet you too and um
2: yes i really enjoyed it so thank you
0: thank you and thanks to you jenny and navjo to uh, see you next time
1: thanks tom see you next time thank you see you next time
0: bye for now